When Fortuna spins you downward, go out to a movie and get more out of life. Ignatius was about to say this to himself. Then he remembered that he went to the movies almost every night, no matter which way Fortuna was spinning. He sat at attention in the darkness of the Britannia, only a few rows from the screen, his body filling the seat and protruding into the two adjoining ones. On the seat to his right he had stationed his overcoat, three Milky Ways, and two auxiliary bags of popcorn, the bags neatly rolled at the top to keep the popcorn warm and crisp. Ignatius ate his current popcorn and stared raptly at the previews of coming attractions. One of the films looked bad enough, he thought, to bring him back to the Britannia in a few days. Then the screen glowed in bright, wide technicolor. The lion roared, and the title of the excess flashed on the screen before his miraculous blue and yellow eyes. His face froze, and his popcorn bag began to shake. Upon entering the theater, he had carefully buttoned the two ear flaps to the top of his cap, and now the strident score of the musical assaulted his naked ears from a variety of speakers. He listened to the music, detecting two popular songs which he particularly disliked, and scrutinized the credits closely to find any names of performers who normally nauseated him. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Karl Bookmarks. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Apologies, friends. We were going to be at full strength tonight, but Friedrich had a last-minute call away. He's um, deep in the weeds editing his new YouTube video series where he breaks down at half speed great shots in Italian lawn bowling. Uh, I believe he's planning to call this series Bocce Slow-Mo. And with that, Carl, we've officially hit rock bottom. Whoa. Wow. That was amazing. Uh, it is our last episode <laughs> of the season. Unfortunately, Fortuna spun her wheel and Friedrich was not able to be with us, but we will carry you as best we can through tonight's book, uh, which is John Kennedy Tools, A Confederacy of Dunces. But first, as always, a few items of business. You can always follow us on social media, The Last Stand, Twitter, at the readers K, follow along for episodes and updates and things like that. Uh, we are available to email with questions, comments, insults. Uh, if you want to ship us some paradise hot dogs, uh, you can do that at the readers Karamazov at gmail.com. We always love to hear from fans or enemies. And uh, you can get our podcast wherever. I mean, if you're listening, you clearly found it, but you can get us on Apple, you can get us on Spotify and many other places. Lastly, but not leastly, please tell your friends about the pod. Spread the word. Uh, we're hoping to see some uptick in numbers over uh, the rest period before we launch season four, which I think will probably come sometime late in this year, in December or maybe January of 2023. So be on the lookout and the listen out for that. We're glad to have you back, 
Tonight, as we wrap up our season on The Name of the Rose with, I think, the only possible book we could have ended our season on, A Confederacy of Dunces, it fulfills all of our needs. Uh, it is part of our mirth section in this season. I'll let Carl tell you a little bit more about why he chose the book in a minute. But first, as always, a little plot summary for you. So Confederacy of Dunces is uh, the story of a man named Ignatius J. Riley, who is living in 1960s New Orleans, but is a man out of time and out of place. He's devoted to the sort of early medieval, late classical philosopher Boethius. He is in rebellion against the modern world, but at the same time, he can't seem to stop consuming it through bad films and bad items to eat, his endless bottles of Dr. Nut soda. But Ignatius lives with his very put-upon mother, and one day his mother uh, crashes their car into a building, and so horror of horrors, Ignatius, who's about 30, is forced for the first time to go out and try to find a job. And that's (laughs) the main structuring device of the book, uh, is his quest to find a job. He gets employed for a short time at Levy Pants, and uh, that does not go well, and then he gets it finds some gainful employment as a hot dog vendor on the streets of New Orleans, which also does not go well. But all the time, he's interacting with with a sort of a pretty wide range of characters. I'm going to briefly mention a few of them. Probably most importantly, other than his mother, is uh, Myra Minx, who is a friend of his from college with whom he communicates primarily via letter. She is a sort of classic New York liberal, and she's always encouraging him to loosen up and be less of a reactionary and sort of join her in her political and and sexual movements and he's very much resisting her but can't seem to let go of their their relationship either he also um, has some troubled interactions with policeman mancuso who mistakenly arrests him at the beginning of the book and kind of floats in and out befriends his mother a little bit throughout the book and policeman mancuso again very much put upon is on a quest to arrest somebody anybody for a, a vice crime basically There's also uh, Jones, who's a young African-American man, and he's kind of floating through the book trying to not get arrested for vagrancy and at the same time kind of resisting the vagaries of working at a nightclub called the Night of Joy where his boss is a miserly woman, and he's trying to pull sort of pranks on her throughout the book. All those threads kind of come together by the very end of the book where Ignatius is causing all sorts of problems as usual, and he's finally going to probably get sent to an, uh, an insane asylum, and then he escapes off to New York with Myra at the very end of the book. Um, there's a lot more going on. We'll get into some of those things as we go along, but that's a sort of a threadbare coat hanger on which to hang our coat uh, as we go. For now, I'm going to toss it over to you, Carl, and you can tell us a little bit about why you chose this book, why you thought it was a good fit for this season in particular, um, and anything you think we should keep in mind as we start our discussion. Thanks, Soren, so much, as always, for that great summary. I picked the book because it's kind of one of those cult classics that I hadn't read before, and I really wanted to see what the fuss about it was. I know that a lot of New Orleans writers sort of touted as a really good book of the city, and I believe there's a statue of Ignatius in New Orleans uh, somewhere, and writers like Poppy Z. Bright, who I really like, love the book. So I thought that it was worth worth going for. And I knew that there was the Boethius element, this kind of person who is, finds himself jailed in the present and imprisoned in a time that is not the time of his liking or a time when all of the values seem totally contrary to his own. And that dynamic 
leading to mirth seemed interesting compared to the heartfelt dramatic ending of name of the rose where there's almost like a lament and a sadness in the feel of it but the book that was lost was the book about laughter so maybe this book is the laughter we kind of wanted in some way or the characters wanted in some way at the name of the rose so that's kind of what made me shoot for it and then i was really pleasantly interested in a lot of the elements of it i also listened to the great audiobook edition which really brought out some of the comedic elements for me the actor who does ignatius's voice sounds very much like a looney tunes foghorn leghorn <laughs> as if he were a lsu law professor or student or something so it brought out some of the comedy for me there thanks carl those are those are great reasons to read this book it's a book that i really enjoy that i've returned to several times over the course of my life i want to add one more kind of cool connection which is that this in itself is an another like flan o'brien's third policeman was another almost lost book for us right john kennedy tool sort of tragically committed suicide at a young age with this book unpublished no one knew who he was and his mother took the book and just basically would not stop bothering walker percy who at that point had had some measure of fame as a Louisiana writer until he read it. And he he, he said, I started reading it. And I was just like, okay, I'm going to throw this away after a couple of pages. And then he kept reading it and he kept reading it. And so it was through his influence that it was published initially and then ended up winning uh, the Pulitzer Prize posthumously for, for John Kennedy Tool. So it is, a, it is a lost book that was then rediscovered uh, really a decade plus after it was written. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating story there as well. And um, a nice ending to that, that at least after his death, even there's some measure of recognition for the, the achievement that he, he's had, he has here. I guess I want to start since we, we've talked a lot about genre this season and, and thinking about it. And I think the natural genre into which to fit this is probably something like a picaresque, right? It's a, it's a shaggy dog story. There's not a whole lot of through plot line that develops it, they the, the threads do kind of come together at the end in some interesting yeah. ways which we should talk about in terms of how that then fits into the, the picaresque mold but it is a story that's very much based around its episodes rather than any overarching idea and then you're making a disagreeing face so we can talk about this <laughs> well, is good well, I... we can talk about this so yeah so okay you tell me then is this more a more unified book than i'm giving it credit for or is it really a series of stories that then somewhat coheres by the end. Well, I mean, it does the great thing that you're saying, which is that kind of picaresque slapstick, why are we doing this and then that? And it just seems to keep going. But I did think that at the end, there was kind of a comedy of errors feel, which like Shakespeare's comedy of errors and that like more traditional comedy where the things like two wrongs do end up making a right. Some people get happy endings in some way or the semblance of a happy ending is kind of put there for us to maybe have one final laugh so in the way that multiple errors end up returning to a kind of harmony in shakespeare's comedy of errors i felt like the bows put on at the end tried to work that way does that make sense yeah no i i think i do agree i think i do agree with that assessment that there's some sense in which the all the blundering that's happened throughout the book and not just ignatius j riley's blundering but People like Patrolman Mancuso, who's just, you know, stumbling blindly around New Orleans trying to catch a crook. He finally gets his day of glory, right, because of this chain reaction of events that are totally absurd. And so, yeah, so everybody sort of gets this 
pleasing ending or an uptick, you might say an upward spin in the wheel of fortune, as Ignatius would say, that almost everybody in the book has some sort of pleasing ending. And, and in particular, you know, for both Ignatius and his mother, by sort of finally separating from each other, there's a mm-hmm. sense in which they might each have a happy ending. Ignatius with Myra Minx and... Um, his mother with her sort of suitor, Claude, who doesn't want to have to deal with Ignatius, understandably. Um, so they both sort of get this ending that seems sad because there's a parting there of, of a relationship that's lasted for 30 years in the same house, and but now new things for both of them. So I, I do agree. I think there's something of that, a reversal, a comedic reversal of fortune that happens at the end. And the whole Levy Pants becomes Levy Shorts uh, situation. And I think Joan's gets a better job there or something right mm-hmm. yeah he, he gets rewarded yes. for his work too yeah and i think miss trixie does too so there's like the whole kind of tying up of everyone's ridiculousness ends up working together in the end kind of situation which is uh it plays interestingly into ignatius's like philosophy in a way that the whole modern world is like a series of errors that keep hitting just right enough to keep going on or something. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's take that then and run with it a little bit. Cause I'm interested to know what you make of his philosophy. And so obviously it's tied in largely to the work of Boethius in his consolation of philosophy, this idea that essentially fortune holds us at her whim, takes us up, takes us down it's not like there's no free will, but we're, we're largely at the mercy of outside forces. I wonder to what extent you think that Ignatius is at war with the modern world, and to what extent is he inescapably wrapped up in the modern world? Because that, that seems to be one of the main tensions in the book, right? There's this wonderful sort of running joke in the book that he's constantly going to the movies just so he can watch them and groan at how terrible they are, right? So of course, we've all been there, but he'll eat just sort of garbage food just so he can experience the pain of having eaten that terrible food, right? He masochistically puts himself through these terrible experiences so that he can then complain about how terrible modernity is. And so I just wonder, I guess I would think about it this way, like if you if you took him out of the modern era, would he actually be happy at that point? Or would he continue to be miserable in a new way because he's been deprived of the things that he wants to be miserable about? Well, I mean, he is kind of a weird, like, inverse of Adorno in some way where, like, he needs, like, something to, like, Adorno, the regressive character and listening or something, like, like loving great music and hating everything about modern music, but listening to so much of it to know that he, in fact, hates it so much. This figure of Ignatius is a little bit of that, but I think it's it's a much more interesting novel than Toole could have written one of this amazing, pedantic scholar who is very learned and very accomplished in some way and does hate the modern world. But because um, there's a more kind of comedic, humanistic gargantuan pantagrelian kind of sense of the world here tool is willing to kind of admit that like people are inextricably in the modern world you can't extricate yourself from the present you have to be living in it in some way unless you're kind of the like into the wild chris mccandless which would have been another bad kind of version of this novel trying to totally leave society you have to make some 
way in the world. And so the realization, the admission that the modern pleasures are very enticing and the average person, even as they disagree with so many of these things, is probably going to find themselves caught up in those pleasures or those foolishnesses all of the time. That just makes it such a heartwarming character in some ways. Um, You can't help but feel kind of bad for this person who has a pretty strict sense of what they think the world should be like, but has no way of trying to make that real. And it fails horribly at trying to make that real, like embarrassingly. (laughs) Um, So it's, I think that it makes for just a really rich like style of, of the book. I'm glad you brought up that element of sympathy that we, I think are supposed to have for, for Ignatius as absurd a character as he is in some ways there is still that element of both attraction to him as a character but then also a sympathy for him and his struggles and you you kind of see it'd be easy in one way kind of another way that this book could have gone is this sort of a study in hypocrisy of course because he's disgusted by the filth and scum of modernity but then he's also like in his room with his pants down jacking it 24 7 right and so there's this sort of tension within him to resist the lures of modern modern pornography and things like that but he's unable to do so in the end and he's also right of course he he defines himself by his catholic faith um that's part of his sort of anti-modern stance although he is just naturally catholic grows up catholic but that's a part of part and parcel of his anti-modern stance and yet he's not a churchgoer he refuses to go to church because the priests aren't, you know, like reactionary enough for him. But then what you learn at the end of the book, which is really quite touching, is that the reason he doesn't go to church is that his dog that he loved died when he was in high school and the priest refused to give a funeral for him. <laughs> He's like, it's just a dog. Come on. No soul there. The soul's dead at, at death, right? For a dog. You can't have a funeral for it. And so that's like broken him inside a little bit. And so there's that that element of sympathy. He's like, he's an absurd character and he's a very humorous character, but he is also someone that is not repellent in a way that he might be because there's an underlying sort of human need that drives his various somewhat absurd stances on things. And, and the other characters too find him ridiculous. And so it's it's easy to go in with the other characters who find him ridiculous. There's that one moment where I think it's like Winter Light or something is a movie that he might have seen of all the movies. And I would have a hard time believing that Ignatius would not have been won over by Winter Light because it's <laughs> as a modern but very also medieval take on the world and worldly problems Uh, but that's just me i'm too swayed by the modern i guess i want to touch on something that you mentioned at the beginning which is that you listened to this as an audiobook in part and that's really fascinating to me you said it really brought some of the humor alive for you i think that's really right i I just read it but it struck me reading through it this time like i think in i've when i remember the book backwards i always think about Ignatius J. Riley, right? Because he's the main character and he's on the covers swaying around in this bulk and he's just a wonderful comic creation. But at the same time, I was struck on this read through how many voices there really are in the book. And Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering to get a little bit sort of fancy here on it. It made me think a little bit about Bakhtin's idea of polyphony within a novel, right? These multiple voices that work together 
to create something. And so I guess I'm wondering, some of that is literal, right? There's literally these different voices. We get a sharp sort of attention to the different ethnicities and their various accents, whether that's always successful or not, we can maybe talk about. But of course, there's Ignatius and his mother, who's described as having basically like a New Jersey accent in New Orleans. It's like this one area of New Orleans has this one particular strange accent. There's policeman Mancuso and his family who are Italian of Italian descent. And there's some, some of that element in there in the way they speak. Um, and there's, of course, Jones, who's, who's African-American, and he speaks in a sort of, you know, a dialect. I, I'm wondering, at the literal level, how the voices are working for you in the text. But then also in a, in a, in a sort of a broader, you know, more Bakhtinian sense, that play of voices within the novel re- representing these different viewpoints. Ignatius, who's very abstract and theoretical, many of the other characters are primarily basically just out to survive or to get through their days. How do you find that play of voices working um, within the novel, both at the level of the comedy of it, but then at the level of ideas as well? Is there any counterpoint to Ignatius, I guess, at the the philosophical level within the book? In the Bakhtinian sense of polyphony on the the narrative level, in terms of as we go from chapter to chapter, is there, from tools I view writing, is there a sense of multiple philosophies in competition with uh, Riley's? I don't know that there are, but listening to the audiobook and like the literal different voices worked better for me than on the page. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to translate the page dialect in my mind to mm-hmm. what that would sound like in a really robust and true way. So I I appreciated that. I do think, though, that there is, and the 60s were this kind of time of cross-class contact, Mm -hmm. cross-ethnicity, cross-race contact in a city, and as a novel of a city, and someone really going around a city, and a great person to go around a city who's against everyone. (laughs) In one review, you know, against homosexuality, against heterosexuality, against autosexuality, but, you know, involved in meeting all kinds of different people. Ignatius has to kind of meet, confront, and be appalled by everything (laughs) in the city. And that really ends up being slyly a tour of all the different kinds of people in the city and in some ways bringing them together and maybe even helping each other in interesting ways. So I think if there's some polyphony, it's in that element. But with like Myrna, for instance... Mm -hmm it seems to me very much the case that like Myrna's worldview is foiled by Ignatius's or, or we're meant to take it to have been foiled by the end in some way. Like we're supposed to laugh at Ignatius because he can't live up to his principles, but his principles don't seem laughable on the page. At least how I read it. Whereas Ignatius's philosophy is meant to, make Myrna's philosophy laughable. Does that make sense? That's interesting. I hadn't considered that before because that's what primarily what I was thinking about was Myrna's voice as that potential sort of polyphonic voice counteracting Ignatius's. I'm not sure. I I think there's something to that that his I like the way you put that that he he is laughable because he cannot live up to his own ideals, but his ideals are not necessarily laughable even though they seem so starkly different than those of modernity. But hers kind of, I think you're right, kind of do seem laughable, or she doesn't really have a set of principles. She has sort of 
pragmatic motions masquerading as mm-hmm. principles or something like that. But then what do you make of the fact that in the end he does go off with her? She wins in some sense. She finally gets what she wants out of him, which is him. Right, and that's what makes the ending kind of like really heart-wrenching or bittersweet or, or very sad to me in a way that he flees being like labeled insane and his mother wanting to kick him out in a kind of kind gesture to his mother. (laughs) Um, It seems like that motivates him more than a resumption of his relationship with Myrna or something, Uh, but it's a very self-effacing, like self-sacrificing move or something almost that he's trying to make like, hurry up, we better get out of here uh, before they, they catch me for his own, you know, he is, looking out for number one, looking out for himself, but but also this sense of, I can't keep living this way for the sake of someone else, not just for my own sake as well. But I guess when like when he reads her letters and his like diatribes against her, to me it seemed like the book was really siding with some of those those feelings. Like Myrna is always doing the new politically engage thing and at the kind of a forefront of respectable liberal politics in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a real critique of that in this book, which is it doesn't seem that Myrna has genuine bonds with these people that she's trying to help one time for the sake of looking good or looking like a great liberal, especially in a kind of New York scene of high visibility connected to one's politics and especially in the theater where like the political and the visual and the theatrical is quite blurred right ignatius by being total antithesis to that in some ways i think tool's point is that there's a weirdly a political power in that isolation to think totally differently about a bond you can create with someone past the visual element of it or what it gains you for the people around you in terms of status to a person who for whom status is nothing (laughs) there's a kind of reversal of how close you can get to people if that makes sense connectability is is a little bit different yeah yeah those are all really great points carl it's kind of pushing me off in several different directions so let me say a couple things then you can choose what you want to respond to one is that I think you're right that there's something very, I'm gonna, maybe you will want to run with this as Carl bookmarks, but there's, there's a very materialist critique in this book insofar as the sort of do-gooder characters are very focused on the symbolic and the other characters are focused on their own material needs, right? So there's this great letter that Myrna writes him and she says, oh, we're filming this movie. It's going to expose all these the, the, the terrors of like, how bad race relations are in America, and then they have to quit the movie because they can't pay the the actress who's an African American like any money. And she's like, "Oh, what an unreasonable thing to do! Can't she sacrifice for the greater good?" And then there's this other wonderful one of my favorite storylines in the book. So there's a the, Miss Trixie is this old accountant basically at Levy Pants. And um, she's like 90 years old and all she wants to do is retire and they won't let her retire because Mrs. Levy 
is convinced that she needs to keep her job to feel needed and wanted. And so she tries to bring her under her wing and like psychoanalyze her and, you know, put makeup on her to make her attractive again and all of these things. And all she wants is an Easter ham and to be able to retire, right? And she just like will not, she's not allowed to retire. And so there are these wonderful critiques that, that, that he's, the tools building into the book of like, you know, you say you want to help people who are less fortunate than you, but you won't do the one thing that they want, which is material help, right? So, so that's one element of it that I think is really, I think you're right, is really trenchant in the book. And, and, and for that reason, you know, Riley is much closer to those characters because he himself is is poor, right? He, his mother lives off of her, her dead husband's pension and social security. He doesn't have a job until, you know, partway through the book and he's not successful at his jobs. So he has that sort of connection. He's a lower class white, you know, not even a working class white because he's not working, but, um, (laughs) in New Orleans. And so that, that gives him a certain contact. I like the way you put that earlier contact with, other ethnicities and other, you know, people, elements of the city who are kind of neglected by the power structures of the city. I think that's really good. I also think, this is my other thought here, there's something really odd, but I think very insightful about the fact that Tool has given us this character who we would clearly label as a political reactionary, not even like a reactionary. He's so reactionary he wants to go back to, you know, a, a Catholic monarchy in the Middle Ages. Like he's so far off of the political spectrum that then he makes these unexpected alliances. And so he's better able – he like almost succeeds in leading a worker revolt at Levy Pants uh, of the African-American factory workers through his bizarre like push for, you know, this mo- reinstating a monarchy and all these things, right? And, and so there's this element of like, he's so unmappable by our current standards that he takes these positions and you say like, that's not a conservative position or whatever, right? But he's so far off the grid that he doesn't fit comfortably into those categories. And so he makes these sort of strange alliances throughout the book. For example, he's very anti-police, right? Throughout the book, which is you think of like law and order conservatism, like he's nowhere near that, right? So there's all these interesting kind of permutations where his reactionaryism takes him. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I was just thinking about the Swift quote that kind of leads us into the book and where we get the title from. When a true genius appears in the world, you may know him by this sign that the dunces are all in confederacy against him. And this book does feel really Swiftian, which is not a word I would use lightly. I think it's hard to be Swifty nowadays when the real and the satirical are so close all the time. Or, you know, the satire of two years ago is the reality of today. But it seems to strike me as this weirdness of what is Ignatius's politics or what is it about his sense of the world that leads him to do these like arch conservative yet hard leftist political things all at once. And I don't know that it's necessarily this like sense of genius, but it is this like singularity of a person who refuses a lot of easy categorizations that in and of itself seems to be a good in and of itself for Tool. A person who rejects and refuses a lot of categorizations leads to a breakup of how and sort of entrenched system or certainly our current sort of politically gridlocked system works and then 
things that seemed impossible or connections between people or ideas that seemed impossible are now possible because this person is just so against all of the other categorizations of thought. And that seems like a, a real political good in some sense. It's good to have a character that is that unmappable sometimes, perhaps, to make people realign things or to make people question their values again. He's uh, our H. Ross Perot. <laughs> no. It's a, it's a for you young. That's a deep cut for you youngins out there listening. That's like Carl and I's childhood. I guess I would say, um, I you know, I wouldn't want that to lend towards the, we need a maverick or, a, you know, like <laughs> that, that narrative has itself already been co-opted by the Ted Cruz and Trump and other people, but certainly a third party politician, right? That would be a more legitimate change to the established way of American politics. If there was a viable third party that won a strong number of seats, then there would have to be a new way of aligning. And like, as in many European governments, you'd get these weird kind of the hard left aligns with a slightly rightist leader sometimes on certain issues, because then one issue gets changed. So a different sort of political structure would take over. And I think Tool's kind of interested in something like that in the in the city, in the micro-political or something. Yeah, I think that's really good. You know, there's a, another kind of recurring theme in the book is that Claude, Ignatius's mother's suitor, can only view things through the lens of something being communist, as he calls it, right? Mm. He, he looks at Ignatius and his like strange political beliefs and he's like, must be a communist, right? Mm -hmm. And it's yes. that wonderful sense of, you know, you're absolutely right of, like an, an, a true outsider who somehow breaks down these categories. And I feel like that's especially resonant in the United States because there isn't really a tradition of that so much, right? We have such mm -hmm. ossified political categories. It seems like, you know, it wouldn't be, if this were in an English context, we might call him something like a red Tory, right? So he's like a conservative, but he's pro-environment and he's pro sort of basically socialist in his economic structures, but he doesn't fit well. And But as I'm talking this out, it does occur to me that actually Louisiana then is a particularly appropriate place for this because it is the home of some of the weirder experiments in American politics. And it's it's an outlier in America, in the American South, because it's a heavily Catholic state in that mm. sense. But then it's also politically kind of a weird place because you have of course Huey P. Long who's like maybe you know one of the great figures conflicted but great figures of American outsider politics right who sort of blurs the lines between conservative or populist and liberal right and it does it does strike me that New Orleans is the right city to set this book not just because it's the city where John Kennedy Toole lived and grew up but because it's a city that doesn't really fit into the American structure in some important ways. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Anyone who's been to New Orleans, I think it is one of those unique American cities that there's not quite another city that has the same exact feel to it in a lot of ways. And as you're saying, yeah, there are all these kinds of amazing meshes of different cultures and backgrounds and histories and ethnicities there. So I totally agree with that. Can I ask you a question? that I think you'll have more to say about than I do, but I'm curious. Can we fit Ignatius J. Rowley then into some sort of taxonomy of the outsider, which is this kind of a big category that emerges right in the 
post-war period, um, both in a British and an, Ameri- I, in an American context. I'm more familiar with it in the British context, but of this outsider figure who who just rejects society. Because, you know, of course, in that sense, this is a book that's written in the 60s. It's not published until 1980, but it's written in the 60s in that sort of heyday of, you know, of figures like Ken Kesey or, you know, certainly like the tail end of the the beat writers of a sort of rejection of large elements of American society. But, but, but clearly Riley doesn't fit into that, right? But he's some sort of outsider figure or even we might even consider him an outsider artist because he is filling up these notebooks with the, the, the diary of a working boy, right? And, <laughs> and his various thoughts on how terrible modernity is. So is that outsider art? Is he like one of these, you know, like a people producing these like zines or something, right? Or, you know, like this, this art that doesn't fit into the commercial sphere. And, and then thinking about that, like both artistically and politically. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. I was, I was going to ask you a question about Boethius, but we'll go there later. So the outsider in this time makes me think of Richard Wright's The Outsider, uh, which this is not like. Colin Wilson's The Outsider, a little bit. And then The Stranger, or sometimes translated as The Outsider by Camus, not that either. But outsider art, I do think that's totally right. So Henry Darger, the Chicago janitor who lived alone in his apartment and wrote a 15,000 page fantasy novel (laughs) famous outsider artist definitely reminds me of Ignatius J. Riley so I think the outsider artist figure there but he's he's not so much an artist as he is uh, I don't know what a writer I guess a thinker Uh, (laughs) a vendor so that totally rings a bell to me he weirdly has a tradition and is all about tradition but remains outside of the art world in any sense or the publishing world in any sense. And that I think makes him more valid in that vein. Yeah. Thinking more about outsider art, that that makes it really interesting change to him as a character for me. Yeah. I, I thinking about it in particular, you know, your Henry Darger reference I think is a good one, an apt one, because there's that tendency in the outsider art world. Why are you doing all this? Like you're obsessively living your life centered around this one thing that you don't anticipate really anybody consuming. And usually Mm -hmm. when outsider art comes to the public, it's by chance or accident, right? Or maybe it has a very small underground kind of cult following. But that sense of dedication to your conviction about what makes for the kind of art that you want to produce. And it's so singular and strange that it's off-putting to people, but there's Mm -hmm. something also kind of captivating about it. And I I see that, you know, certainly in his tendency to fill up these big chief tablets, right? And like throw them away onto the floor of his room where nobody will read them, but he's compiling this, whatever, this magnum opus of some sort um, on the floor of his room. Yeah, and also um, has these like, smatterings of tradition which we got a little bit of of in carlisle i feel like Mm. but it's more so here there's different styles of learning that to the people who are experts in those different styles don't go together but for this kind of person they do so for someone like darger there's kind of like modernist or pop and then like almost edwardian style to all this writing and it doesn't 
seem to go together chapter after chapter. It's the kind of thing that any big publishing house would say the editor needs to totally cut, yeah. cut, cut and, and synthesize and structure, you know, and the outsider artists are often the people who say, no, I want, I consciously want that weirdness mm. in here. And that combination of styles is my style, you know, and with, with the visual style of Ignatius, you know, he can't lose his hat. So it's all got to go together. So I, I think that that reference really makes sense to me. Yeah, that's that's a good point. This sort of mishmash of things together. When he's right, when we read the writings in his journal, it's this interesting combination of like, of course, very as you might expect, like very archaic vocabulary in some ways, mixed with then. I love the the running sort of diary of a working boy, which is this sort of like like what like nineteen twenties like. Or, or even earlier, like Horatio Alger type, type mm-hmm. you know, rags to riches, very over the top, um, sentimentalized style. And he's kind of playing on both of those things at once, which is a really fascinating combination for sure. Yeah. And you can see why maybe in the 60s, it's just starting. But then in 80, when it's, it wins awards, this book is itself kind of smattering of different styles and highs and lows of culture. So then in kind of a more self-avowedly postmodern moment that that's all exciting to everybody now to poor Kennedy tools, you know, lament that he was kind of ahead of his time as they would say. So the question I wanted to ask you Soren was more along the lines of there are figures like maybe a Chesterton who have this kind of legitimate political push against the modern and a more cogent synthesized take on what that looks like in the modern world. And I wonder if for you, Riley is meant to comment on a kind of Chesterton uh, figure, either lovingly or with some chiding, or do you see there just to be not a parallel to that, that kind of red Tory or someone who, who has like a very legitimately popular and populist anti-establishment politics or like small C conservative politics or like in the Canadian style of conservative politics, all those, all those things exist in the world. So I was wondering if you, if you see him as a proto, one of those figures or as aligned with them or as laughing with or at those kind of figures. I'm embarrassed to admit that I never thought about Chesterton in connection to this because he does seem like the, if there is a prototype for Ignatius mm-hmm. J. Riley, it would be somebody like, like G.K. Chesterton who certainly, um, both in his proportions, he was a very large man <laughs> exactly. and, and kind of larger than life figure. And also, <laughs> I think he sh- they share with each other a certain blusteriness that you either really turns you off or you find really you know interesting and attractive. And so if those of you who don't know, so Chesterton's an early 20th century uh, British writer, and he writes some fiction. He, he writes some of the best early detective fiction um, and some other stuff, which I think is, is pretty interesting. Um, but then he's also known for his sort of political writings and theological writings. And so again, he's sort of this pretty unmappable figure. He, he's He's a in the liberal party in England for a long time, but then kind of drops out and, and backs away from them in part because he feels like they're not fulfilling their mission. And so he 
along with some others, kind of comes up with this political theory called distributism, which is about uh, basically returning to the land and splitting up the land. And he's kind of a localist in, in things like that and becomes very un- unmappable politically. And there's some really good things about that and some some maybe not as good things about the way that th- those theories work out in practice. But he is a kind of he's a fascinating figure from that perspective, a rejection of the modern that nevertheless is not like a neoconservative, like wet dream or something, right? It's like a real rejection of the modern. You might also think about somebody in a slightly different vein, but but I think there's a, there's a certain sympathy there to, to somebody like William Morris, the Christian mm-hmm. socialist of the late 19th century, um, of, of the sort of um, arts and crafts movement, a return to localized yes. production, a rejection of mass industrial society. I think there's absolutely a sympathy there kind of across across the ages and then to what extent is that laughing at them or with them or yes, right? is, is yeah. so that's, I think that's a really fascinating question. I, I'm not sure. You know, I think it's, I think that whatever you think about Riley as a character, just like whatever you think about Chesterton as a, as a political figure or whatever, at least they're trying something, right? <laughs> like we may end up disagreeing with them in some basic points, but they're outside of that stagnation of mm-hmm. the sort of the modern impasse. And, and I think there's something admirable about that in both characters. And I think we're supposed to find that admirable in both in both of them. Or, I mean, certainly, you know, in Riley's, the presentation of Riley by Tool, I think we are supposed to find that willingness to ask the questions you're not supposed to be asking admirable in that sense. So, yeah, I think there's something sympathetic there while also recognizing the fundamental impossibility of that position, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's what makes the ending so... If it's a Chesterton figure, then one way to read the ending is kind of like that will ultimately end up being a, you know, Penguin classic or whatever, and people will look at it as kind of a totally mainstream, totally... (laughs) idea that that isn't that interesting that isn't that different uh-huh. from everything else and is the stuff of conservative speeches you know 50 years later and stuff like that or it's kind of like the moment where bernie was not going to run as an independent or whatever and just take go for the democratic nomination you know the outsider takes all that outsider cachet and just goes to the mainstream you know there's a real loss of possibility for different futures in that moment and I think that's one way to read, again, micro-politically, the ending of this book. Ignatius needs Myrna, and that, that different way of doing things can't make it, ultimately. It's not just, just not viable. He has to kind of get sucked up into the system. It's a little bit of a bleaker, sadder ending. But I'm curious if you think there's kind of other endings, especially given that, you know, the Boethius... Uh, the end for Boethius is he will die in prison, but will he succumb ultimately? No, because he has the consolation of philosophy. He's seen sort of the God's eye view of providence working itself in the world. So there's like this arch comedic, small C, happy ending sort of on the table for us. But I don't know how to just read the novel with, with that, other than that the comedy of errors becomes comedy and everyone kind of gets their one thing they were going for they get their like literal consolation i guess that's a fascinating really challenging framing carl i really like that 
um, it's making me think a little bit, I was thinking in your previous comment about there is something of a tension within Ignatius about whether he's going to like sell out or not, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And as he's writing, he keeps saying like, there are all these great scenes I'm about to write that I bet Walt Disney would love to get his hands on and produce, right? And so, and there is that like, you know, that, that ties into his consumption, of course, too. Like he can't stop going to these movies that he absolutely hates and he seeks out the ones that he knows he's going to loathe and he knows that he hates the main actress in it or, you know, the person who's making the costumes in it or, right, all of these different things. He's, he's sort of seeking that out. But then, yeah, the question of sort of selling out artistically or philosophically or politically is a really important one. Like to what extent do you resist and then at what point do you cash your chips in either for personal gain or right if we're thinking politically with you know we think about something like Bernie like to have a better shot at it or something right mm-hmm. but then what's lost when that happens is a you're right is a critical question I had never really thought about the ending of this book as a sad or bittersweet ending but you're absolutely right that there's something to that uh, I guess I had always thought of it as like a real, almost like a release valve for all this pressure that's been building up um, the throughout the, yeah, the, the valve, an erectation of the valve. But, but this buildup over the course of the book of so such an intense pressure that can't be contained forever. And finally it sort of explodes. But now you're making me rethink it and think about it as this sort of story of a man who finally is just sort of beaten down by life. And okay. So this is, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to turn it in a new direction. We've talked about some possible models for this book, and you brought up Gargantuan, right? And you brought up Swift, and those are some of the great satires of world history. Um, so great. That was wonderful. I'm sure John Kennedy too will take that. But I was thinking back this time around to the original comic novel, which is Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. And... I wonder to what extent we can, and I don't want to push this too far. I'm not, I don't think this is like a retelling of Don Quixote or something, but there is something quixotic about the book, about Riley specifically as a Quixotean character living in the past, a past that's gone by him, confronted maybe not with one, but with multiple, you know, sort of possible Sancho Panza characters and um, (laughs) all the other characters who are trying to bring him back to reality I think of Policeman Mancuso as like one of those, you know, the, I can't remember the, the name of the character in Don Quixote, but like the graduate student guy who's trying to bring him back because he like wants to marry the niece, right? These characters who want him to live in this real world again. And of course, the ending of Don Quixote is incredibly sad, right? Where he's dying and he's mm-hmm. renouncing everything that he, he had done up to that point. So that really makes sense to me that then this is, this is a sad ending. It's sad to see this character who has brought us so much delight by being so utterly unconforming to the standards of his age, then finally succumb to that pressure mm-hmm. and renounce his way of life and take up something new. That is really sad now that I think about it. <laughs> so thank you. You brought me down here. Yeah. I mean, the the sad way I thought of it too was like the the sanitarium is the world for him and he's he he escapes it into another form of it you know the larger form of it there is no escaping that's why he's never left the city the city is 
the only refuge for him. And that's what makes it kind of, I think, I can see why the lovers of New Orleans love the the novel then. It's, it's a real love letter to the city as an escape. And people who go to cities with unique characters f- to escape something. And that's maybe where you can get that some of, if it's ever possible, the Chesterton's local goodness and of course that's something today ignatius riley would rail on like the foodies or the food (laughs) network channel commercialization of new orleans and or other aspects of new orleans but the the people who go for a bit of grit and who knows what will happen all of this sort of magical contact that's happening um i have a friend who kind of just went to new york in the art scene and is very much sort of feels like Alice in Wonderland that there's so many different people connecting and doing different things they've never seen before all at once it feels like a kind of magic spell has taken over you and to me that's the Quixote in reverse the the comic aspect of it or if there's a kind of Boethian happiness or comedic aspect it's the character of the city is is who we leave at the end that's really nice. And I like that from the perspective. So there's a really wonderful, very underread Chesterton novel called The Napoleon of Notting Hill. And it's... Of course you would bring us there. So. <laughs> it's a wonderful book. I think it might be his best book, uh, his best fiction book, at least. But um, it's this, it's a story basically of of London being divided into its its boroughs or however you describe that in London. Sorry, I'm not a Londoner. But, um, and they're all kind of at war with each other. And so it's like a hyper-localization. And that's very Chestertonian, right, is the idea. It's not like he's not a big fan of like national or international culture. It's like the local particularities that you get, the local flavor of mm-hmm. a, a particular place. And, and that's very Ignatian here in that sense, right? The sense of New Orleans as a finely detailed place with different areas within it beyond just the French Quarter, which is like, you know, the, the all the tourists, which he's complaining about at points in the book, right? You get beyond those, the outside image of the city and into its real particular niches and weird nooks and crannies. And that's kind of a form of escape or release for you from some of the pressures of a very standardized modern world. I like that a lot. There's that sense of a granularity and a possibility within those granularities that you'll find someplace where maybe you belong. Maybe you'll find that in New York then, I guess, (laughs) at the end. Get a job waiting tables at Guy Fieri's uh, Times Square restaurant. (laughs) Going to Flavortown. All right. (laughs) Yeah, you'd make a great Guy Fieri friend. (laughs) On that note, I think we will wrap this episode and and therefore we will wrap season three of The Reader's Karamazov. Thank you all so much for bearing with us uh, through this wild season. We've been all around the world and everywhere. We will be back at some unspecified point in the future with some unspecified theme for season four. We're working on that. We're bringing that up in the laboratory as we speak. Stay tuned, friends. Stay listening. And until next time, whenever that is, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out.
to Groucho Marx. I don't care what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your proposition may be good, but let's make sure it's understood. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm still against it. For months before my son was born, I paced the halls from night till morn, saying whatever it is, I'm against it. And I've been saying since I first commenced it, I'm against it. <laughs> 